You are listening to the next Best Picture podcast, and this is our review of it. I think the universe revolves around you. You think that you'll always be protected and cared for. Then, one day, you realize that's not true. Because when you're alone as a kid, the monsters see you as weaker. You don't even know they're getting closer. Until it's too late. of one thing an evil thing all right everybody you were just listening to the trailer for it and the story is as follows when children begin to disappear in the town of Derry, maine neighborhood kids band together to square off against pennywise an evil clown whose history of murder and violence dates back for centuries it is starring Jaden Lieberher and Bill Skarsgård, and it is directed by Andy Muschietti and written by Chase Palmer, Carrie Fukunaga, and Gary Doberman. Joining me for this review, I have Tommy Barquinero. Pleasure to be here. And Matthew Garrell. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be. That was very, very close to Truman Show. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, why not? I really thought that's what you were leading with there. Um, Not really. I mean, I'm actually surprised nobody opened up their intro by saying, you'll float too. Yeah. (laughs) I have have my red balloon present, so. Ah, okay. Okay. (laughs) Now, just to preface by saying here, um, I will uh, add that I have uh, not seen the original It since I was a child. And I didn't have time to revisit it before this, but it's pretty dated based upon stuff that I've seen. Um, I watched some clips of it on YouTube beforehand. So I kind of wasn't that interested in really going back and re-watching it, but I remember it petrified me as a child. Has anybody else here seen the original? I have not. Nope. Okay. All right, so this is, this is good. We have a clean slate here. Uh, this film is lighting the box office on fire right now with an astonishing record-breaking opening weekend uh north of 100 million potentially we've been hearing which is absolutely in you know insanity but people are really really responding to this film uh matthew garrell let's start off with you did you respond to the 2017 version of it i would say i responded overall i don't know that i responded quite as highly as some including some people on this call but I definitely did respond overall. I, I think it has a lot of high points. There, there's some stuff that hold it back from being truly great in my eyes. But overall, I think it's a good film. All right. And Tommy? You know, I'm in the same boat as Matthew. I really did enjoy the film. And uh, it's certainly the big movie event uh, of the weekend. One of the most uh, exciting uh, movie-going experiences of the year. Um, I thought it was delightfully creepy. Although I gravitated to it more for its uh, comedic moments. I thought it's, I think it's a very funny movie. 
and I didn't necessarily find it to be uh, terrifying. Uh, but uh, I think it's a funny film, uh, creepy, and I like the uh, youthful nostalgia aspect of it. It calls to mind uh, other Stephen King adaptations uh, such as Stand By Me. So overall, definitely uh, worth seeing. Yeah, for me, I, you know, that to me there's like four different types of horror films, okay? There's B-level horror movies, there's comedy horror, there is serious horror uh, like something along the lines of like maybe like it comes at night where it's more um more real world based psychological horror you know stuff that like truly disturbs you and then there's the mainstream big budgeted studio horror films you know we kind of got one of those even very recently in annabelle creation and you have other films um like the director of this movie andy uh muschietti uh i think that's how you say his name and if not i apologize to everyone every time i butcher it but he directed mama a couple years ago with jessica chastain nikolai costa waldo like that's also a big budgeted uh horror studio film the conjuring falls into this category i would say that it is probably the best mainstream horror film I think that we have received since the first Conjuring film. Okay, you're going to receive some pushback from me on that one. <laughs> All right, fire away. I, mean, but, I, mean, know, I like it, but... Throw something at me here. What, what, what do you think is beating this right now in your eyes over the last couple of years? Um, the Conjuring 2. <laughs> oh, okay. So you thought Conjuring 2 was better than Conjuring 1. Okay, that, well, No, I fair. think Conjuring 1 is still better. I just think Conjuring 2 is better than it. Wow. Okay, all right, so let's, like, really break this down then, okay? Let's start off with the first thing, first and foremost, the scares. What I appreciated about this movie was normally when I go see these studio mainstream horror films, traditionally, the jump scares are scares where it's like the music, you know, does that, you know, that, and, you know, you jump and you're like, ah, oh, God, and it turns out there's nothing there. And it's like, oh, oh hey, sorry. You like somebody like puts their like hand on their shoulder and they freak them out and they turn around and it's their like doofus buddy, you know. It's <laughs> like, oh yo, hey, you know, is it a party? What's going on? <laughs> Whatever. It's something stupid. This movie, I don't think there was a single fake out jump scare. I think every single jump scare to my memory was legitimately like dangerous there was something that was happening that was either extremely dreadful and eventually going to kill um one of the children or it was pennywise just oh god just coming out of nowhere and it's like all of a sudden like he has his hand on their shoulder and he's not saying dude uh you know where's the party <laughs> he's saying i'm going to freaking mutilate you and destroy your very existence I, it just it creeped the hell out of me, man, and it caused so much anxiety for me while watching it that for me, what this really comes down to is that there were so many jump scares, so many moments where the danger felt like it was just always present that I found this film for two hours and 15 minutes to be more of an endurance test than anything. By the end of it, I was completely exhausted. I, I would agree with you on the on the creepiness factor, and I think a lot of that uh... – you know, it was due to Bill Skarsgård's performance, which is just electrifying. But, you know, even in his creepiest moments, I still think there's an element of humor there that really kind of kept me from being uh, fully terrified. 
you know, for example, there's a lot of moments when Pennywise will uh, approach the kids and he has lethal intentions. Certainly it's, it's a scary moment, but he's also being extremely eccentric. He's dancing in an odd way. And so I found myself laughing a lot during those moments. Uh, that's what the entertainment factor was for me. I wasn't necessarily on the edge of my seat in, in horror, but I found it to be wildly entertaining, uh, perhaps for different reasons than you did. Yeah, you know, it's interesting too because there's a lot of supernatural elements in this movie. There are some moments like, yes, the moment when he's dancing is a little goofy, I would say. There are some people who think that's genuinely unnerving. Like, it's uncomfortable, and right. that, that I can understand uh, has its effect on them. For me, that was not the moment where I thought, okay, this is, you know, scary. That was one of the few moments where I did feel that it was intentionally goofy, because at the end of the day, he, it, it is a clown, you know? <laughs> but what it reminded me of is it made me think this is what people must have felt like when they first saw nightmare on elm street in the movie theater decades ago you know because the freddy krueger character is much like pennywise i feel like in this movie supernatural elements a genuine uh uneasy you know creepiness all around jump scares um the threat where it like he can literally do anything i'm there's kind of a, a several layers that i would have to kind of go into to really fully explain how I feel about the character overall. I think his single scariest scene is in that first sequence where he's in the sewer talking with the kid. Oh my God. And he's acting manipulative with manipulative intent Ooh. and looking up from the sewer makes him very creepy. I, I think this, the, the, yeah, that. The, <laughs> and then the wait, scene, wait, wait. And then also, I'm telling you, I, I was I the only one whose mouth dropped in that sewer uh scene where pennywise i mean i don't know if this is a spoiler but you know he attacks georgie did did anyone else like literally like their mouth just drop in that moment because i i thought that was so so disturbing it was definitely a bit of a surprise <laughs> yeah you don't expect usually uh the gore to appear you know within the first five ten minutes of the film but it really does start off on a on a scary note there and I think we're also used to more neutered PG-13 horror films so that there was actual solid gore involved was also, a, I think, a welcome uh, to the film. And not torture porn gore. You know, traditionally now in horror films that are rated R, it's – it's oh, God, Jigsaw is coming out. Oh, God. I just – ooh, I got chills. I really, really, really want that film series to just go away forever. <laughs> yes. uh, but, you know, those films, Hostel, et cetera, et cetera, torture, torture porn films, that's usually what we equate now uh, when it comes to gore and horror. So I found it very, very refreshing that this was not a uh, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, you know, serial killer or even, uh, I, oh yeah, slasher. That's what I was trying to say. This wasn't a slasher flick, and this also wasn't a torture porn flick. This was much in the same way like Nightmare on Elm Street is. It's a supernatural horror film that feels very Stephen King-like. Like, it really captures the essence of what it is that people love about Stephen King novels. Yeah, and you know, unlike those torture porn films, which are often, you know, just so serious and devoid of any humor or catharsis. The horror in it, you know, it's also attached to the lighter moments of everyday life. There's a lot of scenes with the kids 
joking amongst themselves. Uh, you know, there's a lot of very funny moments, uh, nostalgic moments. The film's set in the 80s. And so I really appreciate scary movies that, you know, don't separate itself from, from real life. That makes the scares all the more shocking and uh, effective. And I think the bond that the children form, you know, the Losers Club, is actually a very endearing one because – I thought the film did a really good job of maybe not fleshing out the characters completely. I guess that's what the sequel is going to be there for. But each each uh, I keep wanting to say children. Each child was distinguishable enough that I knew who each one of them were, and nobody seemed to really get lost in the shuffle. Uh, Jaden uh, Lieberher, uh, he was the uh, lead child in um, Saint Vincent Midnight Special. And, oh God, the Book of Henry. <laughs> and he, he's actually a really, really great choice here. He has the uh, the stutter. He does a really, really great job anchoring the film. It's his story. He's the one that's on a quest to find out what, what actually happened to his brother. And he's uh, the emotional core of the film. But the bond that formulates then uh, amongst these kids, you know, in, in an attempt to fill that void that that the loss that he feels from his younger brother and he in turn finds um a friendship with you know the uh, the girl um beverly and uh, all the others i i really i really thought that was very sweet and i actually found that the film did a really great job of selling that to me where i feel like i i i i kept Comparing this to other mainstream studio horror films, I, I feel like I've seen before in the past, those elements of the story, to your point, Tommy, they seem to get lost. And for the film to give those uh, those moments it, uh, their due, it went a long way for me. And I think, at least for me, that's both a good and a bad thing. I mean, it, it does do a fairly decent job of forming a bond between these characters. But say, for instance, you have one of the characters who's the the one black kid in this ensemble, he doesn't really join the group until two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through. So there's not really a whole lot of bonding that goes on there. We just see kind of some side stuff that goes on. So I, I, I sort of think that having such a large ensemble is a little bit to its benefit, but I think it doesn't help it completely either. Yeah. And I will admit that there are characters outside of the group. I'll, I'll give you this. The Bowers character. What was it? Henry Bowers? Harry? Ke- Kenny? I can't remember. Kenny Powers? No, I'm <laughs> uh, but the, But this um, antagonistic bully. I looked at this plot line and I said to myself, okay, this is getting really ridiculous. It's getting to a point where I really, really hope that the film kind of hammers it home what the metaphor for this really is. Or I really hope that something happens where Pennywise maybe overtakes this bully's body and manifests itself into like an actual human being or something. Because I felt when that plot line wrapped itself up, I I just kind of was left with this feeling of, why did the film need this? Uh, we could have axed this and the story would not have suffered. What was the point of all this? I totally agree. I, I, I thought the, the bully characters were really cartoonish overall. I mean, at first they seem okay, but then when you start getting into a scene where the guy is literally going to carve his name into the fat kid's stomach, I'm like, I'm sorry, we've gone from, okay, this guy's a bully to this guy is a sociopath and I no longer believe him. 
I agree, and I think I think it's a kind of a heavy-handed attempt to include some, you know, moralistic messaging. You know, stand up to the bully. The only way you can defeat the bully is to, you know, show them that you're not afraid of them. And that kind of moralistic messaging, while well-intentioned, I think in a, in a big-budget horror movie like this, feels a little out of place. And I totally agree that the, that the bullies were way over the top in their, you know, mean mean spiritedness. Well, and along the same lines with that moral messaging you're talking about, I mean. If he was the primary antagonist, okay, maybe. But given that we have evil, creepy, supernatural clown Bill Skarsgård over here, (laughs) I don't know why we need the other guys. Yeah. Right, and there's a scene involving, you know, that main bully toward the end of the film. I won't give anything away, but between him and his father, his father's watching TV. I mean, talk about over the top. There's a scene there that that just feels completely uh, laughable in, in terms of what the character does. I respect that this movie really focused on the kids and there were no real adult characters. But what kind of bums me out is that the adult characters that we do get in this movie are also over the top and kind of almost laughable at points really in how much their caricature caricature. I can't, I can't, I can't speak this evening. Apparently, (laughs) You know, you have the overbearing mother who's turned her son into a hypochondriac. You've got the abusive father. You've got the tough as nails father who, you know, I I guess due to his upbringing has made, you know, this kid into a bully, you know, it, it just, you know, was cliche, but then again, this is also a film that is built on nostalgia, you know, so maybe cliche is maybe that's just what people are responding to. And, you know, they made the right. Apparently, they made the right decision because <laughs> people are loving this movie and going out in droves to see it. I'd be very curious, though, if some of these um, complaints that we have about the movie will hurt it maybe long term after after it has its really, really successful opening weekend. I doubt it. I think it's going to have legs for a while. I think you're not going to see problems with it until like Kingsman comes out in a couple of weeks. I think that's when it's going to start taking more of a dive. In terms so of box if, if we're, uh, so then the question I have is this, are we nitpicking? Are these personal issues with the film or are these real issues? Because I know people who saw this movie and they said that the bullies, yes, they were over the top, but the film wanted you to feel like they were as much a, of a threat as Pennywise and th- that we still were experiencing the horror. Like, the, you know, before when I said about how this film doesn't give you a chance to breathe, and it's like an endurance test. You would think in those scenes we could be like, OK, they're going to have a scene with the bully. Bully's going to be a dick. Uh, the friends are going to come and save them. No, like th- their lives are still in danger. And it's like, my God, like th- this is serious. I I. The the amount of anxiety I felt while watching this movie, even in scenes where I felt like we should have been safe, uh, was just really, really putting me over the edge here. And so, uh, you know, people really, really responded to it. Are are we nitpicking, or is this a film that was made in a certain way, deliberately so, to evoke that '80s nostalgia, and that is why it's having the success that it's having? I think it's a deliberate approach, and I think part of it is, you know, this whole story is told from the perspective of the kids, and I think if you're in their shoes, the bullies are going to seem over the top in their, you know, mean-spirited ways. Uh, Pennywise is going to seem, you know, completely evil. The adults are going to seem kind of clueless. 
So I think it might be a way, you know, this is from the kids' eyes. This uh, is how the kids are perceiving the situation. And adults and uh, bullies do come across in that way when you're looking at it from that perspective. You know what? I kind of agree with you there because there is actual evidence in the film where uh, Beverly sees something truly horrific, which once again is also um, a homage to Nightmare on Elm Street. And her father does not see it. Mm -hmm. So this is something where the kids are perceiving uh, events one way and adults are perceiving it another way. And it's got two totally different interpretations. So I could actually buy, if somebody wanted to make an argument to me, that some of the problems that one may have with the film is because the film is taking um, that perspective of the child and warping the reality and the sense of things um, towards that. Because, man, yeah, you're right. When you're a child, I think back to when, when I was a kid, facing down a bully in the schoolyard was like, you know, it's like, that that's it, it, you know from from my perspective now it's not life or death but as a child you look at it like this is life or death you know absolutely like it's a it's a big it's a big thing so I I can understand that argument I I, I actually could buy that does do I think it works I don't know maybe I need to it, see it again it does and it doesn't really yeah I, I, I think it it works in the sense that it strikes a fairly good balance between more real-world sort of issues that kids face versus more the supernatural sort of things that your evil, creepy clown is bringing in. And, I mean, you, you brought up the, the Beverly thing. I mean, I, I liked that because it's a metaphor for the abuse that she's undergoing. She's afraid of becoming a woman, so it is her long hair and blood, a, a menstruation metaphor, if you will, that scares the crap out of her in that scene. Yeah. But then... In the real world, there's also, okay, she has the real world problem of her father being abusive. So it works that way, but then again, we bring up the bullies, and that's where it becomes too much because there's too much extraneous stuff. And if you cut that out, it, it also helps with the pacing in the middle because there's some pacing issues in the middle, I think. And so if you cut that subplot out, I think it helps that a little bit too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely think so. Uh, Tommy, you brought up before that you appreciated the humor in this film. I wanted to share some lines um, that I recalled, actually, uh, lines of dialogue that just were cracking me up. A lot of them came from, uh, I think the character's name was Richie. Yeah, uh, the Finn Wolfhard. Oh, my Finn God. Finn Wolfhard. What, what a name. Mr. Stranger Things himself. Yes. <laughs> you know what was funny is when the movie was over, I was like, I've seen that kid somewhere. Where have I seen that kid? I know I've seen him in something. And I'm like... Holy shit, they literally cast him because he was in Stranger Things. Like, that's right. it, doesn't get any more uh, typecasting than that. But, anyways, uh, this town used to be a beaver trapping camp. It still is, boys. Yeah. Am I right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was good. Uh, another really great line was Do you need to be a virgin to see this fucking clown? Right. That was really funny. <laughs> and, um,. What was, the, what was the other one? Uh, it was, I can't believe I drew the short stick. Too bad this wasn't a dick measuring contest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I somewhat appreciated some of the humor in this. I do think the dick jokes just became a little too repetitive after a while where it's just, oh, but come on, man. When you're <laughs> that kid's age, that's all you're joking about at that age, though. You know? Not I think it's deliberately sophomoric. I, I would agree with Matt. I, you know, these are kids who... 
it, it feels very real in terms of how they would interact at that age. I agree that some of it, fine, okay. It's just there are so many of them throughout <laughs> from beginning to end. It's like, okay, can you make a reference to something else, please? Yeah, well, what about having a second fanny pack? <laughs> <laughs> that works. Right. <laughs> You know, it, it had its moments. I, I have to say, it was charming. And the kids um, all do a really great job. I, I think they I think they definitely did their homework here. Do, I don't think the casting is as good as Stranger Things, which is an inevitable comparison that one needs to make while watching this, I think. But I thought the kids all brought their A game, and I found them to all be compelling characters that... You know, I could watch a whole two hours and 15 minutes of them on this journey trying to defeat this evil clown. Let me get to that part, though. The evil clown and trying to defeat it and so on and so forth. Um, Without getting too much into spoilers here, because I don't want to spoil it. But I found this this is the part of the film. It's literally the third act. The third act is where I have the most issues because I started to feel the film's length. I was, like I said, completely exhausted. It is also possible that my mind was just so warped from the amount of jump scares and just the emotional stress that I was being put through while watching this movie. Because believe me, this movie scared the shit out of me. Um, When they quote-unquote fight Pennywise, I had this issue where, and this has been one of my chief number one complaints about anytime you introduce a supernatural being into a movie, you need to establish rules, okay? If Pennywise can shapeshift, make things pop out of thin air, and do whatever the hell he wants, how is he, how, how are you going to, like, attack him with weapons, and how is that actually effective? Like, why can't Pennywise just transform himself into a dragon and just stomp on all the kids? You know, it's like... What are the rules? You know, and then eventually there's a cardinal rule that's established at the very, very, very end of the movie. And the kids all kind of realize it. And spoiler alert, it's how they defeat Pennywise. But I I, I just feel like Pennywise should have won immediately. And instead, you know, he fucks around with the kids, I feel like, when there are so many moments where he has the opportunity to actually kill them. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I would ascribe the the feeling of disbelief you're describing, I think, kind of applies to the whole film and really to most horror movies. I mean, in most horror movies, they rely on the fact that the characters are going to make some astonishingly stupid decisions. You know, why did that kid open that door? Why are they walking in that, you know, dark space? So I think in a movie like this, it does require the suspension of logic to a degree. So I think what you're saying is totally fair, but... I'm not sure the film should be held to such a uh, you know strict uh, logical standard. I don't because then I remember a movie called It Follows came out a couple years ago that did exactly what he's asking for in terms of establishing rules and setting up a supernatural being that can be anywhere and be anything basically or at least appear like anyone and that worked much more effectively in my opinion as horror because there's a creeping dread that exists throughout because you never know where it's going to come from. I, I love It Follows. I agree. It's a far superior film in my mind, but I don't know if they're quite trying to, to do the same thing. I think this film's much lighter on its feet. It's trying to be a much you know funnier, more entertaining, more broad uh, blockbuster. So um, 
I understand where you're both coming from. I just don't know if uh, the intentions of the filmmakers are the same. You know what it's making me uh, think about, though? I, I would have loved to have seen uh, Fukunaga's version of this film when he was I attached don't. as director. Really? Well, when I read that the script he originally penned had that scene in the sewer that is really, really controversial that's not in this film, I kind of changed my mind. Because originally, yeah, I was like, oh, Kerry Fukunaga. I love Kerry Fukunaga. And then I read that his original script had that scene. And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't need that. No, no, no. I, I just feel that what he wanted to do, and I read an interview where he said he wanted to do an unconventional horror film. And obviously the studio had their idea of how they wanted to make this film. And they wanted to do what they've always done when they release um, a mainstream studio horror film. They wanted to play it safe, you know, so that they can market it the way that they wanted to market it. They wanted to make their money. And you know what? It's paying off for them. The movie's making a shit ton of money. And they're going to be super, super happy that they made this decision. And they found somebody that could be their yes man. And that's all well and good. But if Kerry Fukunaga was going to promise us something that was ballsy, that was different, and actually was something unique for the genre, I, I that's why I would like I would have liked to have seen it. What we got though from me was the best version of this type of film that a big studio is going to allow to be released. I didn't feel that it was groundbreaking or anything along those lines, but the notes that it needed to hit in terms of effective jump scares, characters, um, you know, character building, world building, et cetera, et cetera. I, I really, really thought that it really did those uh, extremely well here. So. All right. Um, before we move into grades, anyone have any final thoughts on it? Okay, I would just like to give a, just a quick public service announcement to people who go see this in theaters as they should because it's a fun movie to see with a big crowd but you know i saw it last night and i've had this experience at a few you know big budget horror movies there's always a group of people you know talking incessantly throughout the film uh you know yelling at every big scare which is fine you know but using their phones so my psa would be see it with a big crowd have fun gasp at the big scares but please Put your phone on silent and, and do not, you know, talk throughout every single scene. Yeah. Yeah. I, I endorse this 100%. And I'll tell you right now, I don't know if you guys are nice. Um, I can tell you right now I'm not nice. <laughs> yeah. I am the guy that will deliberately, deliberately try to make you uncomfortable if you're ruining my movie experience. Oh, right. <laughs> do I, 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 I confront people hardcore. As you should. Yes. Yeah, so I almost wish I was there to witness. I don't want to give I, I I don't want to give a preview of that, but you know, thank you so much for bringing that up, Tommy. I really appreciate it. How about you, Matthew? Any final thoughts on the film? Um, we kind of already touched on the nostalgia a little bit. I guess a couple of specific ones that I found amusing, like the the reference to Beverly as being like Molly Ringwald, because this takes place <laughs> in 1988, so it's like a year after the Breakfast Club. Yeah. Um, and then there's a, a theater marquee that's got like a double bill of Batman from 1989 and Lethal yeah. Weapon 2. It's yeah. like, huh, Batman, yay. That's awesome. But other than that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in full agreement with uh, Tommy's PSA and uh, I don't have much more beyond that. Final thoughts for me. Uh, three things I didn't get a chance to talk about. Um, the projector scene. Uh, that 
was probably the most effective jump scare in the whole movie for me. Totally did it's not the one see. one that you least see coming, I think. No, 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 no. So, I mean, it, it's a moment in the trailer, but there's a but there is an even bigger moment, quotes around the word bigger, that I did not know was coming. And when it happened, it just, it, it got me good. <laughs> it got me really good. <laughs> Definitely the best jump scare in the movie, yeah. Yeah, by far. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch upon also is... The technical aspects of this movie, I really thought that it had really fantastic cinematography. I thought it was shot extremely well. And I also felt that the movie had a, a distinguishable score. You know, something that, all had, you know, featured piano and, you know, actually had strings that had melody to them. It wasn't just being used to create those jump scares, which it did plenty don't get me wrong, but I felt like the music uh, was constantly um, a factor in this movie and never really um, either took a moment to necessarily um, go away. You know, I, I, I always felt it was present throughout. And the final thing I wanted to touch upon. Uh, oh, oh, staying with the tech stuff really quick. Um, there are two moments in the movie that are completely jarring and feel out of place, and I don't know why the uh, director decided to do it, but one of them involves uh, Boys to Men. Uh, I think it was Boys to Men, right? That was like New a Kids on the Block? Yeah, New Kids, new on, the kids on the yeah. Block. I'm sorry, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, new Kids on the Block, it was like a poster and just a weird, jarring editing moment um, with the music. <laughs> And then there's another scene later when kids are throwing rocks at other kids and the music once again comes in with a very odd cue and all of a sudden the whole sequence is edited just in a very bizarre way. Um, they, they Those moments just felt out of place and jarring to me. So, And the last thing I want to just also say then um, as a final thought too is there are some really, really really effective use of uh, shadows in this movie where the camera is positioned in such a way that you see the child in the foreground and there are shadows in the background, possibly on the right-hand side of the screen while the child's on the left side of the screen. And for the life of me, guys, I can't tell you if I saw something move in those shadows or not. And I don't even know if that was deliberate. I don't know if my eyes were playing tricks on me. I have no idea, but goddamn, was it effective. <laughs> yes. Okay. Final thought. Uh, well, we just did our final thoughts there. So great out of 10. Matthew, great out of 10. What would you give it? Um, so I have to say that this is more of a mixed bag for me. I think there's some really positive elements in terms of like Bill Skarsgård and some of the, the scares that it uses, but it, it has enough problems with being over the top and some pacing issues. And to me, jump scares are still kind of lazy overall that uh, I have to give it a six out of 10. Okay. Tommy, I'm going to go seven out of 10. I think it's well worth seeing uh, in large part because of Bill Skarsgård, as Matthew mentioned, he gives a hilarious, scary, and very weird performance in, in all the best ways. Also, I like the nostalgic aspects, and Matt, you mentioned the cinematography, especially with that scene uh, in the bathroom with Beverly. I think it's a stunning scene. So it's a fun movie, fun movie to see with the with the crowd, uh, despite the usual cliches that come with the territory. Uh, 7 out of 10 for me. And I would say that this is like the very definition of a 7.5 for me, but I can't do .5s and 
I'm going to obey my own rule and force myself to round up or round down. And I'm going to go with an eight. And I know that that might be very high, but trust me when I tell you, other than It Comes at Night, this was probably the most effective horror movie I've seen in 2017 so far. So I have no problem giving it that rating overall. And already, Oscar potential. Anybody? Anything at all? I doubt it. If anything, it would be like makeup maybe because of Pennywise. But I think even that's a bit of a stretch. But then Suicide Squad won an Oscar for makeup. So the world is weird. I did see somebody uh, message me on Twitter saying how um, they really, really believe that this film deserved a makeup nomination. And maybe it wasn't so much deserved. It was maybe more so them saying how cool it would be if a film like this got an Oscar nomination, even if it was just for makeup. Just the fact that a mainstream, big-budgeted studio horror film got an Oscar nomination. You know, that... I just, I just don't think there's enough of it to warrant the nomination is the issue. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I agree. I do. I, I agree. And I don't think it's going to happen. But it would be pretty, pretty sweet, though. With that said... Um, zero Oscar potential from me, Tommy. Zero Oscar potential. Zero Oscar potential. You know, if I were in charge, I would I would love to see Bill Skarsgård get nominated. I know there's no chance of that, but to me, his performance is every bit as good as uh, Heath Ledger's from The Dark Knight. But in terms of what will happen, I don't think it has a chance at any nominations. I'll tell you this much: Bill Skarsgård is set for life because all he has to do is show up to horror conventions yeah. dressed up as this character, and he'll get paid for the rest of of his career. <laughs> yeah, I, I I think he's I think he's you know created something that in years time will be considered probably iconic, and we're probably also going to get one more film of this performance. So there's more opportunity for him to cement that status. And what a year for the Skarsgård brothers! You have Alexander Skarsgård and uh, Big Little Lies, and now Bill. So good year for the family. Absolutely, Stellan must be so proud. Yes, yes. Matthew, where can they find you on the internet? I am at NovaMG7 on Twitter, and I'm a contributor for Next Best Picture. Tommy. Uh, you can find me at, at Sir Barquinero. That's B as in boy, A-R-Q-U-I-N as in Nancy, E-R-O. He is an anointed knight, people. Follow him. Yeah. <laughs> and you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to the Next Best Picture podcast review. It. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, and CastBox. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to leave us a review on iTunes. We would really, really, really appreciate that. And we will see you all next time. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee 
that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts, and new episodes come out every Monday.